Amen. Merry Christmas, Grace Church. What? Come on, you can do that. That's all right. Wow. Man. Just such a great service so far. You guys did an amazing job. Okay, so we got a lot of kids in the room right now. That's exciting. Awesome. Are you guys excited for Christmas? Okay, so here's what we're going to do, all right? I'm going to give you a chance to show us how excited about, church, about Christmas you are, all right, and church. Um, so, uh, so in just a minute, I'm going to ask you if you're excited at all about Santa coming tomorrow and just about Christmas tomorrow, if you're excited about that at all, I just want you to yell as loud as you possibly can, all right? Not yet, not yet, not yet, not, not yet, not yet. I'm going to count to three, all right, parents? All right, one... Two, three. Wow. Wow, that was really good, you guys. Now be quiet. Okay? All right, we're going to spend the rest of our time just kind of quiet. All right? This is silent time. Okay, all right. If you have your Bibles, open to uh, Matthew chapter uh, 1. Let me tell you what we're going to do right now uh, for this part. So, I specifically ask people to invite people who um, are not regular people in church all the time, okay? And here's the reason why I wanted to do that. I wanted to talk to you. Um, And because here's the deal. If you come to church on Christmas and Easter, you hear the same two sermons every year. It's the same story every time over and over again. So what I'd like to do is just mix it up a little bit. Most of the time when you come to church, you hear the story of Jesus' birth through the Lucan story, through Luke's story, right? And that story focuses really on Mary and it focuses on her experiences. It has some tremendous things. It has, it has um, angels that are rejoicing. It has shepherds that are tending their flocks. And it has even Mary's great Magnificat, her song that, uh, uh, of rejoicing to God. And it's, it's incredible, and we'll do it again here. But today, what I'd like to do is shift from Luke to Matthew. And in doing that, we're going to be shifting the camera lens from what's going on in Mary's life to what's happening in Joseph, okay? And so I'd like to look at this from a little bit of a different angle, and hopefully um, I'd like to talk about expectations that we have of each other and then expectations we have of God. And hopefully what will happen as a result of this is that this will be helpful for you and not just the same sermon you've heard year after year. So let's dive into the text right now, and then we're going to look at some, uh, some other things. Matthew Chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18. This is the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1, 18 starts like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. 
I could probably write a story um, of the beginnings of God incarnate in flesh in a much more majestic and regal way. We could have him born to uh, kings and queens. We could have him into a wealthy family filled with prestige and power and authority. And yet, for some reason, God chooses something very different. So what I want to say is that even the very birth of Jesus from a Jewish perspective was very Um, unconventional. They weren't expecting that. What they were expecting was a king born to a royal family, the house of David, who would become for them a political ruler and dynasty. And so what happens here is expectations as they are, we sometimes have expectations of God that he fulfills in a way that's very different than what we expect him to do. And for some people, actually, the gap between our expectations and how God operates is sometimes where some of us have shipwrecked our faith. It ends up being very disappointing to us that God doesn't act the way that we are wanting and requiring Him to act. But not really thinking that through to the end and realizing that if God acted according to the way that we think and feel that He should act, we would be God and He wouldn't be. So as we begin our conversation here, I want you to think through some things. I want you to think through your expectations of God and one another. Because ultimately what I'm going to just argue for a moment here is that you're never, ever, ever going to find your fullest and deepest satisfaction unless you find that fullest and deepest satisfaction in God himself. Because watch this. Because there are these moments in our life and we're about to experience one of them. That happens to me every Christmas. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. By the way, this is an evolution for me because when I first married my wife, Kelly, uh, I did not love Christmas and she said, you're going to love Christmas. (laughs) And so as the leader of my family, I said, yes, ma'am, and said, we're going to, we're going to do that. And I, I, I love, but I love Christmas. But here's the thing, here's the thing. Almost every time after Christmas, there's this moment where I'm by myself and I think to myself, is that it? You know, just kind of that one, one of those moments where, and maybe, maybe Christmas isn't that moment for you. Maybe that moment for you is right after you achieved what you've been working for, for all of your life. You hit the bar, you exceeded it. You realize that you're well beyond Uh, your own expectations, and you ask yourself, is this all there is? Is this all there was really meant to be? And can there be a deeper longing, a deeper satisfaction? So I want to look at a couple of ways in which I believe Jesus satisfies us more deeply than any product, service, or good could ever do. Any relationship either. I want to talk to you about a way, I think, two ways that Jesus satisfies the deepest parts of our soul. And the first one has to do with our, our text. If you look at it, Matthew chapter 1, it says that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. Now, the first thing you need to realize about betrothment in the Old Testament was that this was a legal contract with two families that come together and say, we're going to be one family. So Joseph, you agree to marry Mary? Yes. Mary, you agree to marry Joseph? Yes. And that's a contractual agreement. So in order for him to find out what he found out and do something about it, it would require a divorce certificate, very different than the way that we do things. If you're engaged right now, you can just walk away. But in that culture, you actually had to issue a divorce certificate in the process. Now, there's a couple things I want you to see. Joseph's expectations could never have been more dashed than the day that Mary had to come to him. And you can imagine this, if you will, put yourself in the position of Joseph or put yourself in the position of Mary, having to come to someone that you love and say, I'm pregnant. And Joseph, being an honorable man in this day, did not touch her before they were married. And therefore, Joseph knew, this is not mine. And in that moment, all of the expectations that Joseph had for that wedding, for that marriage, for that time, were dashed. We know that because the next thing that he says is, 
I'm going to divorce her quietly. Now, this is great because this shows great character in Joseph. Joseph could have made a big deal about this. And in first century Hebrew law of the day, if you got pregnant outside of wedlock like this, especially when you were committed to somebody else, you could actually be stoned to death. This was a terrible thing. So what Joseph does is he does this really, really honorable thing. He steps up and he says, we're going to deal with this as family. We're going to keep this under the rug. We're going to hide this. We're just going to put it away. I'm going to write a certificate of divorce. Mary, you go on your way, and I'm going to go on my way. His heart was broken, you can imagine. But what happens next is pretty amazing. The angel comes to him, and he says this. The angel comes and says to, to, to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So on the one hand, you have this extraordinary birth and this extraordinary mission. This child that's not yet born has this extraordinary birth because we know that he does not have a human father. He has a divine father. The Holy Spirit gives this child, puts this child, Jesus, inside of Mary. And so Jesus is unique among all people through all history. If you've come into the room and you think to yourself, well, I like Jesus. Jesus is cool. I've read some of the things that he says, do not judge, lest you be judged. I like that. That's cool. That's great. And, and those, are, those are good things to like. But Jesus is not a sage and he's not a teacher. He's way more than that. He's not somebody that we just look at his life and go, oh, go and do likewise. That's a great idea. He's not a moral example. Jesus is actually God in the flesh. God somehow in some divine mystery that we'll never fully comprehend, God himself puts himself within humanity and fuses these things together and it be, Jesus becomes fully God and fully man, never losing any authority of deity and godness and yet at the same time retaining all of the challenge of being human. He was tempted in every way that we are. He was just like you. So if Jesus is more than a moral teacher, and he's more than a theologian, and he's more than a sage, and he's more than a moral example, then what is he? He's God in the flesh, and that requires something from you. If it's true that Jesus is God in the flesh, came among us, walked among us, then that requires something from us, a response. There's this moment where Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and they're sitting kind of in a circle, and one of the disciples who loved Jesus said, when will you show us the Father? When do we get to see the invisible God? And Jesus turns to him and says, do you not know me at all? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When, when you've watched me and walked with me and seen how I've dealt with every circumstance, you need to know that's exactly how God in heaven would respond to everything. Exactly. The Bible calls Jesus the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The exact representation of his being. Not someone like us who's a mirror image of him perhaps or a faint mirror image of him, but the exact representation of him. One essence, one. Jesus. And I think when it comes to expectations, sometimes our expectations fall short because we stop short on what we expect and what we hope in. Because for some of us, and, and, and remember, I said at the very beginning that the gap between where your expectations of God are and where, where God acts on your behalf, what, what the gap between those things shipwrecks some people's faith. And here's the reason why. Because for some of us, our expectations about God, they're, they're a little faulty, and, and here's, here's the way in which they're faulty. We believe that the wonderful blessings that God's given to us here and now, these blessings right now, 
And there's a lot of blessing, guys. We've got a lot of great stuff going on in our families. We've got a lot of great stuff going on in our lives. And God is good. But these blessings right here are a faint echo. They're a shadow of the reality which is found only in God himself. But what happens is we grab a hold of these things here in this world and we hold on to them as if they were life themselves. And then when we do that, they disappoint us. And then we look at God and go, well, I guess you weren't as powerful as, you th- as I thought you were. One of my favorite authors is a guy named C.S. Lewis. And if you've been at this church for more than 14 seconds, you know that to be true. Uh, I talk about him all the time. Lewis was a professor at Oxford University. And uh, he is, uh, was, is, or well, he's dead now, but he was one of the brightest people in the world. Here's uh, one of the things that he says about the subject that we're talking about. He says this, up on the screen. Most people, if they had learned to really look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely. That means seriously. Something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take some subject that excites us, our longings which no marriage and no travel and no learning can really satisfy. What Lewis's point is this, and I think it is really the point of the Bible over and over and over again, is that there are some longings that are inside the human heart that cannot be satisfied this side of paradise. That these longings were put inside of us by God as a beacon homeward. That every single time you fall in love, you remember what it was like to fall in love for the first time? Rose-colored glasses, could do no wrong, just great. Then you got married, and four minutes later you realized it was all a farce. (laughs) Right? Right? Do you remember those moments, though? You remember those moments, like, filled with passion and love? They're just glimpses. And, and maybe, maybe these things, and they're good, and we don't want to say that they're not good. We want to embrace them. We want to enjoy them. We want to reflect on them and thank God for them. But we cannot be satisfied by them. The true joy comes when you realize and you hold loosely another love. When I realized that my wife was never going to be for me everything and I was never going to be for her everything, then, I, then she became a treasure to me because of all the little gifts that she gave and has given through the 23 years of our marriage. I want you to think about it for a moment. But if she is my most important thing, if she is what satisfies me and makes me whole, she is a sinner separated from God, just like all of us. And she'll let me down and she'll let you down too. And we'll all let each other down. I want you to see this next part. Lewis says, here's the solution though. Here's the answer. He writes this. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. So let me just let that sink in for a second. You don't have any desires inside your heart that are real legitimate desires that do not have some objective reality where they can be satisfied. In other words, there is always water for thirst. And there is always food for hunger. He continues to write. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling desires to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. And then he writes, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy my desire, that does not prove the universe to be a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures, so good. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy my desires, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. You see what he's saying right there, right? That when you find these desires, these deep desires inside your heart, you're not supposed to press away from them. You're supposed to press into them. And as you press into them, here's what happens. Ultimately, you'll find that either they satisfy or they do not satisfy. His contention is they can't satisfy this side of life. And so what that means, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. All of these joys that we experience in this life, all these beauties that we experience in this life, they're just pointing us. They're arousing something. They're raising up something inside of us to show us that there is a new world and a new hope, and that new world and that new hope satisfies forever, not temporarily. It's not a present that you open and then become dissatisfied down the line. It's a present that you, own, that you open and you find ultimate satisfaction in forever and ever and ever. I talked about this a little bit last weekend, but I, I want you to kind of see the, the picture of this. I look forward to many things in my life in the future. I got all kinds of wonderful things coming down the road, and so do you. You have all kinds of amazing things that are going to happen, about to happen to you, going to happen to you in the future. But some of those things that I, I look forward to so much, I've been praying for my sons. I have a 20-year-old son and a 13-year-old son. I've been praying for my sons, wives, for their whole lives. And I, I so look forward to the day that I get to meet those girls, you know, to wrap my arms around them and tell them, I've been praying for you since you were born. You didn't even know me. You didn't know him, but I'm praying for you. And I am so excited for the day that I get to meet my nine-year-old daughters, this boy who's going to come and take my little girl away. <laughs> that jerk. And I look forward to getting to know him. There are so many wonderful things that are on the horizon, but all of them just simply are glimpses and shadows, faint images and relics of the hope that waits one day when face to face we see Jesus. And our hope for you this, this afternoon is that you'll come into a knowledge of that relationship with God. We're not talking religion right now, guys. And we're not talking politics, and we're not talking social issues. We're talking Jesus. And what I want you to understand right now about that is that Jesus died for you. And I can hear some in the room that say, I didn't ask him to. I didn't need him to. The fundamental assertion of Christianity is the fallenness of every single person in the world. And that means that none of us have ever lived perfectly we call that narcissism and delusion. And because we've never lived perfectly and we've never lived in an unbroken state in our entire life, we're in a constant need for somebody to come along and fix us and make us whole. And for us, we say that that is Jesus. And watch this. Jesus died on your behalf because of the choices that you made and the nature of your character. And the nature of your character and the choices that you made would put you on a cross deserving to be punished. But because Jesus loved you so much, he decided to be your substitution, to die on that cross on your behalf for your sin so that you can be set free from that sin. 
You don't need to walk around feeling guilty and shamed by all the things that you've done in your life. Have you done some wrong? You've done some wrong. I have too. None of us has escaped that problem. But Jesus takes it and he lifts it off of our shoulders and he says to us, while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got it all together, got our ducks in a row and figured it all out, but while we were messing up, while we were God-hating, while we were doing things that he wouldn't have pleased, God said, I'm choosing you and I love you. And all you need to do is turn your heart to me. And our prayer for you today is that in the middle of this Christmas cheer and all of the beauty around your life right now, you'll stop and take a moment and simply ask, if Jesus really is God and his mission was really to save people, am I saved? Do I need to be rescued? Because the answer is yes. And if you don't know it for sure, the answer is yes. Many people in the room have experienced exactly that kind of salvation. And our hope and our prayer for you, and it's why we invited you, is to know and love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's not going to fix every one of your problems right now. But I promise you this, one day it will fix every single one of your problems. Because all your problems will be collapsed into Jesus. And he will wipe away all sorrow and all pain once and for all. Amen? Let's take a moment and pray, and we'll get back to some worship. Father God, we are grateful for the fact that you sent your son Jesus into this world to not just demonstrate how to live, but to show us that the sinless son of God would be willing to die for those of us who did not deserve it. Lord, none of us in this room look at another person and say to them, we are better than you. We simply recognize our, our moral weakness and our sinfulness and ask you to come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you for the season that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. It is the great crescendo of human history and everything changed from that day. We look forward, God, to the day that you will return and you will make all things new again. In your name we pray, amen.